Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Mike Vernal. He's a partner at Sequoia. He makes seed stage investments across a wide range of verticals and leads their decade-old scout program. Prior to this, he was VP of Search, Local, and Developer Products at Facebook and an engineer at Microsoft. In this episode, we cover the journey from product manager to founder, how to get investors' attention, and why no-code building is such an exciting place to be in right now. This is a must-listen for tech leaders everywhere. Enjoy. Tax season is right around the corner. Sure, you could stress out trying to figure out all the forms you need to file, or you could let Pilot take care of it. They'll take bookkeeping and tax prep right off your plate so you can focus on building your business. When you work with them, you'll have a dedicated account manager who's available to answer all your questions. The process has never been so seamless and easy. Tons of startups trust Pilot for their bookkeeping and tax prep. As a special offer for listeners of Product Hunt Radio, you get 20% off your first six months of Pilot Core by going to pilot.com slash product hunt. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Product Hunt Radio. I'm extremely excited to share our guest with you today. Um, this is someone who works at a VC fund that really needs no introduction, but I'm particularly interested to have him on the show, sharing his experience and learnings with you, because he has managed to go from being a product manager in the industry out of lots of interesting companies into a fund. And I'm hoping he can share a lot of advice on how he was able to do that. And at the fund he works at now. He also leads the Scout program. So I'm hoping he can share some really interesting insights on community building in that space too. So without any further ado, Mike Vernal, please tell us a bit more about you and what you do. Well, thank you for having me on the program. Uh, I'm one of the partners here at Sequoia in the US. I tend to focus on first partnering with companies at the earliest stages, so sort of pre-seed, seed, series A. And one of the aspects of Sequoia is that we, especially at the early stage, really believe that the traits that make a successful company are often shared across many verticals. Uh, and so we tend to be generalists. So I work with a pretty broad range of companies from sort of consumer to enterprise to infrastructure and the like. And then before this, I was at Facebook for about eight and a half years, where I did a mix of product and engineering on a whole bunch of different products. Uh, and then before that, I was at Microsoft, where I did uh, similarly a mix of product and engineering. That's incredible. Um, you have a super cool CV because you have like some of the top tech brand names like all across it. Like, oh, yeah, I was at Microsoft. Oh, yeah, I was at Facebook. Oh, and now I'm a partner at Sequoia, which is awesome. And I thought maybe before we dive a bit deeper into all the things you're working on now, a lot of folks in the product hunt community, let's say in our makers community where we're starting new discussions every day, um, are kind of talking about their first steps into tech. So I'd love to rewind a little bit and hear from you. When did you know you wanted to work in the industry? And how did you go about getting your first job? I would say there was a mix of two things. In high school, I really liked math. I, I thought I was going to be a math major and then a mathematician. But I also worked computer jobs on the side. I, I worked for a startup actually while I was in high school and in college that was uh, near my hometown. And so I went to college. I wanted to be a math major. As it turns out, my uh, so I went to Harvard, and the math department there is very 
is very hardcore. And so I spent about two years realizing I was not nearly as good at math as I thought I was going to be. And so I kind of switched to computer science because I seemed to be better at that. Uh, and I think probably for the better, uh, I think it's easier to find a job in computer science than in math. So I ended up as a as CS major. I was actually a really hardcore Apple fanboy for most of the 90s and probably the early 2000s. And so I actually didn't really use Windows. I wasn't a huge fan of Windows. I really preferred sort of System 8 and then the Mac OS X. But I, I graduated in 2001, 2002, which was both the confluence of the dot-com bubble bursting in probably March of 2001 and then September 11th happening in September of 2001. And so the economy was in a... Uh, the overall tech world was definitely receding. The economy was not in a great spot. And the one company that was really aggressive, uh, aggressively hiring and, and doing a wonderful job of it was Microsoft. And so I ended up joining Microsoft, which was a wonderful experience. And I, I was there for about six years. Wow, that's incredible. And so that was your first role as a product manager. And so you uh, started out your career there. And then, of course, you went into Facebook. Now, in our community, we have tons of product-focused people, whether it's product designers, product managers, or founders that are sort of wearing every single hat as they're shipping features and going to market. I'm really curious to hear whether your philosophies as a product manager changed as you went from one culture to another, or whether there were there were certain principles that were almost just like inherent to the way you approach product design, regardless of the organization you're in. Well, so a couple, a couple of things on that point. One, I had this funny experience where I spent uh, my first four years at Microsoft as a PM, uh, but I was a PM on sort of the .NET framework, which was a developer-focused product. And then I was switching teams inside Microsoft, and I, I joined this sort of incubation effort under uh, this gentleman named Ray Ozzy. And as I was changing teams, they said, we'd love to have you, but we don't actually want any PMs on the team. So if you want to join, you have to join as an engineer. And so I was, I was a little bit rusty at the time, but I acquiesced. And so I, I interviewed as an engineer and thankfully they, they were kind to my coding questions on the whiteboard. And so I, so I, I, so I joined that team as an engineer, but I still basically acted like a PM. And I wrote some code, but I, I mostly, I think, PM stuff. And then when I was joining Facebook, I similarly considered myself a better PM than an engineer. And so I offered to join them as a PM. And uh, there was a similar dynamic at the time where they weren't interested in hiring PMs from the outside. There were, there were only maybe three or four PMs inside the company when I joined. And I think one of the most important characteristics of PMs at the time was you just had really good flow with Mark because he was kind of, you know, guiding overall product strategy. So they similarly said, well, we'd love to have you join, but we don't want any PMs. So will you join as an engineer? So I joined as, as an engineer, but basically acted like a PM for most of my time there. I, I think two things that I think are really valuable. One is there's some, there's some value to having well-defined roles and, and sort of the constraints of that role. But I think what's even more valuable is just sort of finding holes, uh, like finding things that aren't getting done or places where you can be helpful or valuable and just doing that. And then two, there's a set of people who can do multiple functions and those people are just present company excluded. I mean, those, those people are like really, really valuable. Like there is, um, there is this, you know, this guy at Facebook called Lee Byron who 
uh, started as a designer and then switched to an engineer. But Lee is this fascinating character in that he's both an exceptional designer and an exceptional engineer. And I've met a bunch of people that sort of cross between PM and engineering um, in their time. I've met people who cross between PM and design. Actually, Adam Rosario, who runs Instagram right now, started as a designer and then switched to PM. Um, and then I've met a bunch of people that switch between data science and PM. And so I think one just valuable thing, especially for people early in their career, is you probably have to pick one function to start with, but being able to move between functions pretty fluidly is incredibly valuable. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's really great advice. And gosh, you're so right that finding folks who are exceptionally talented in two distinct verticals it is quite rare. Um, and they're certainly to be valued highly and appreciated. I definitely want to hear more about how you transitioned from working at Facebook, this big tech company, into VC. Um, but before I do that, I just wanted to hear a bit more about what it was like to work at Facebook. And the reason why I ask is because you joined in 2008. You stayed for eight and a half years, significant period of time. You know, you were VP, product and engineering by the time you left. A lot of folks in our community, myself included, were inspired to join the tech industry after watching movies like The Social Network and, you know, falling in love with the legacy that Mark Zuckerberg and the team created, falling in love with all the products from Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, etc. So yeah, I'd just love to hear like maybe just like in a kind of nutshell, you know, what was it like and what was it like to be a part of that journey as the company scaled over that time? Well, I mean, it was an incredibly lucky and privileged experience. I in some senses, lucked into, I think, landing at a really interesting company at, at a great time. What, uh, I mean, overall, I think it was a few things. At the time, and I'll, this is will all be old hat today, but it's, it's worth highlighting in comparison. At the time, many of the larger sort of software players, most of the people who wrote software in the world were used to a sort of shrink wrap packaged software distribution model, which usually meant that on the fastest cadence, maybe you launch software once a year, maybe you you know launch TurboTax once a year or something like that. But for most people, you ship software every two years or maybe even every three years. And so you'd have this cadence where you'd spend three to four months sort of planning what you were going to build. Maybe you spent five to six months actually building it. You spent another three to four months QAing it, and then you released it, and then you did it again and again. It's definitely a little bit faster in the web world, and I'm sure Google had a, a much, for instance, had a much faster cadence than this. But for me, the, the starkest difference when I joined was the site just got pushed every day. And one of the, one of the culturally important things when I joined, and I think it's still true today, is, is that they wanted you to have some live line of code on the site by the end of your first week to just kind of, one, make sure you understood the end-to-end process. And then two, just, I think, culturally, like, moving quickly and, and getting stuff out there was really important. And so I was funny. I actually think in, like, the second or third week, I took down a meaningful portion of the site. I and I, I can't remember the exact bug, but I checked something in and took down a bunch of the site, and I was at lunch, and then I had to come back. But that the, the sense that you showed up and here's a bunch of bugs, just go figure out how to fix them and start fixing them and check them in. And then we're going to push it on Tuesday afternoon was, I think, really culturally important. I think that's pretty ubiquitous at this point. And there's all this infrastructure now around CICD, et cetera, et cetera, to, to make that a lot safer. But that to me was a really stark contrast from Microsoft, where, for instance, the first team I, and this was a 
a wonderfully talented team, but not a roadmap to emulate. But I spent four years on this team. When I joined it, it was a year old. I left it about a year before it actually shipped. So it was a six-year project to ship a piece of software, which is not uh, necessarily a best practice. So going from that to uh, you show up on a Monday and by Tuesday, hopefully you check some code in that is live was just, I mean, it is hard to understate it's hard to overstate rather like how transformational that was. Wow. I can imagine. It's incredible really, because exactly as you said, you know, to have the privilege to be in the right time at the right place, companies like Facebook only happen every so often, you know, in one's lifetime. And it's so cool that you were there at that time and got to work on so many cool things like search, local commerce profile. I'm just literally reading off LinkedIn and I'm just like, this is awesome. These are things that I use, (laughs) which is super cool. So I'm curious now, you've got this engineering background, you're doing a lot of product management stuff. The life of a product manager, at least from what I've observed in my time working in tech, feels quite different to the life of a partner at a VC firm. So I was just kind of wondering, when did you start thinking about moving away from operating in the day-to-day of the tech environment to actually starting to you know, f- discover the next future generation of founders and invest in them? Well, so it, was, it was a confluence of a couple of things. First, I'd been at Facebook for about eight, eight years. I was a little burned out on what I was doing. And so I was trying to think about what I wanted to do next. And it happened to coincide with my uh, my wife and I having our first kid. So I, I took a few weeks off for paternity leave to sort of regroup and figure out uh, what I wanted to do next. I never really contemplated a career in VC. It was not It was not an aspiration of mine. But uh, I'd gotten to know one of the partners here, Brian Schreier, because he had actually led the Series A in a multiple companies where I was friends with the founders, um, and they all said superlative things about Brian. So I got to know Brian, and Brian introduced me to the rest of the partnership. And they they, they signaled that at some point, if I was interested in uh, doing something else, I should come chat. That was effectively the tee-up. I think there were two two additional things to that. One... You know, by far the most fun I had in my career was probably the first two or three years I had at Facebook. It was it was super chaotic. People were sleeping in the office, but there was there was such an uh, an optimism around all the different things that we could build and, and where this could go that it was it was just a tremendous amount of fun. And I think getting the chance, hopefully, to work with similarly staged companies and a similar amount of optimism was was very exciting to me. And I, I feel like there are probably some lessons learned that 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 may be useful to people going through that journey again. And then two, in a in a surprising way, you know, when I when I left Facebook, there were a few different teams that were in my org. And for each of those teams, really they were kind of self-contained units. There was, you know, they owned a product, they had a leader, and a lot of a lot of how I tried to support those teams was helping to support the leader of the team, helping them recruit and hire people, helping them figure out the overall strategy for the product and and helping them figure out how the team should grow over the next few years. And that is actually incredibly similar to the role of a board member at, at an early stage company. And so I think one of the surprises to both me and other people when I tell them is how similar rather than dissimilar my job is at Sequoia to probably my last job at Facebook. That's so interesting. I I love that comparison because I think that's really helpful. I think sometimes 
what it's like to be a partner at a visa firm might even seem a bit like opaque to people, you know, beyond the fact that you probably go to a lot of meetings. Um, um, so having that, ha- having that insight into that problem solving hat and problem solving mindset is pretty cool. I'd love to just like break it down a bit more, like on a micro level. Like if you think of, let's say the specific skills that helped you excel in your product role while you're at Facebook. And then those same skills that you use now, you know, being a value-adding member of boards for startups, what what are those? What do those look like? At Facebook in particular, the the sort of the aspiration for management, especially in the sort of engineering and product disciplines, was really to kind of work for your direct reports. Like no one, people self-consciously avoided ever saying that they manage someone else at Facebook. It was generally frowned upon for people to try to assert authority in that way. It was actually far more common. You know, I, I, I remember this, this guy at Facebook named Nam Nguyen, and, you know, he would, he would always go around and he would, he would talk about the teams that he supports. And, you know, those were teams that were in his org, but his mentality was really like, my job is to make you guys as successful as possible and then to sort of recede in the background proceed into the background and just uh, make sure you guys are successful. And that I think is very similar to our philosophy here. Like what we want to do is we want to, we want to find exceptionally talented entrepreneurs and we want to push them to be their very best selves and be as successful as possible and be supportive in the hard times and challenging in the good times, but otherwise just, fade into the background and and not sort of not be in the limelight. And I, I think that's culturally, I think the our sort of approach to how we work with companies is very similar to the sort of the management style at Facebook, which has also been really nice. At home, at work, on the go, we rely on data. But today's cyber threats are too powerful for traditional backup and antivirus defenses. Acronis True Image delivers modern cyber protection, combining the fastest backups with AI-based cybersecurity that stopped over 400,000 ransomware attacks last year. Visit go.acronis.com slash product hunt now to save 30% on Acronis True Image and enjoy easy, efficient, secure cyber protection. Hey, this is Abadesi, and I want to tell you about a new tech news podcast from Recode called Reset. It's hosted by Arielle Duem-Ross, former science reporter for The Verge and the first climate change correspondent on American Nightly TV News for Vice News Tonight. Every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, Arielle will explore the unexpected ways technology impacts our everyday lives and how tech is fundamentally changing our humanity. From authors using artificial intelligence to write novels, to biohackers altering their own DNA, and hate groups using cryptocurrency to fund terrorism. These days, every story is a new story, and Reset is going to show you why. The first episode of Reset is available now. Subscribe to Reset for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. I love that. I think that's really helpful. That idea, I mean, even just thinking of 
my own personal experiences. I've worked at really early stage companies like Hotel Tonight that got acquired by Airbnb or, uh, earlier this year, but I've also worked at like Amazon. And, you know, the times where I felt most productive were absolutely when I had a line manager that wanted to eliminate blockers, but otherwise be in the background, invisible, making sure I had everything I needed to, you know, pursue my goals and excel. Um, and I think that's incredible. I was reading uh, a blog post that you wrote on Sequoia's blog. This was on Medium, where you spoke a bit about your approach to investing in early stage companies and, you know, seed stage. And one of the things that you remarked upon was that it was never too early to start a conversation with Sequoia. I thought it might be a great time to kind of give you the floor to talk a bit more about this approach and, you know, for founders who are listening, why you feel that's the case. You know, our overall approach is that we don't have a cookie cutter process. You know, we we try to partner with really sort of outlier founders that uh, have some unique insight into the world and have this sort of burning desire to go solve some problem. For the sort of the right founder with the right idea, we absolutely love to partner with those folks as early as possible. We we actually, you know, one of the last sort of pre-seed investments that I worked on was three Stanford seniors, uh, computer science seniors. They hadn't actually graduated yet. They hadn't, uh, I think, incorporated the company yet. But they had this really interesting insight into the world based on one of the founders' sort of like personal life experience. And we met them and just thought it was it was an incredibly talented team. It was a really authentic story. And we were really intrigued by the idea. So we started working with them. They've been working out of our office for a few months now. They started working with us before they had graduated from college. And like I said, I think before the company was even technically formed. And that's great. We love that kind of engagement. And, uh, you know, if we can start there, that's that's perfect. But we, you know, if we aren't lucky enough to start at the inception, we still want to just meet those really sort of crazy hungry founders at the earliest possible stages. And sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we meet a team and we're intrigued, but we're, we have questions about something or the other. And if we don't get to partner at the first stage, one, it helps us just understand the business. It helps us think about it in the background. And then two, when either the next round comes around or when the time is right, it makes it so much easier and so much faster for us to sort of decide to partner together. And that's happened, you know, at least one, if not a couple of the companies that I work with, we got it wrong the first time around. And then we went back and we, we fixed it at the next stage. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, that's incredible. I think that's, that's really helpful. I think it's also very encouraging uh, to hear that you're open to having these conversations and also a reminder to founders that, you know, if it doesn't work out that first time, exactly as you said, um, you know, you're, you are always open-minded and um, can reconsider decisions that were previously made. I think that's incredibly encouraging. Thanks for, for sharing that positive news. Now, I know just kind of like digging a bit more into the way Sequoia works with founders, you've actually shared a bunch of really helpful content uh, online to support the founders community, which I think is great. So people who are listening and want to find out more about you can definitely like see some of that. I watched some of the videos that you've got on thecompanybrief.com, which were incredibly helpful. These sort of like bite-sized shorts on, you know, how Sequoia evaluates market size, how to stand out, 
just following off the back of my last question, the way you are happy to start engaging with founders quite early on. I wondered if you could share some advice on how founders who are listening to this interview can best prepare to start that initial conversation, whether it's specific advice on the best ways to contact folks at Sequoia, the best ways to structure that ask, any advice that you can like give that's you know super specific on how founders can really prepare and then actually go about interacting? I, I think there are a few different types of founders. So let me focus on one, which is kind of product-oriented founders. I think it's very, very often, probably two-thirds, if not more, of the companies that we back, I would say that this, the founder or CEO is sort of fundamentally a product person. They're usually either they're usually either a PM or an engineer or you know maybe a designer in some cases. You know, great product people will build great product. Um, like they just have the, they usually have the DNA to understand their customers and un- be able to distill down their needs and just build a, a product that delights them in solving that need. What I think great product people typically miss or just have a blind spot around is really thinking about the overall business. And when we evaluate any company at the top level, there's usually just, there's three factors. There's team, product, and market. And I think you're a great product person. You probably know what a great product team looks like. And I think you can, I, I can believe that you will hire a great product team. I can believe that you you will hire, uh, you can build a great product. But I think product people typically aren't trained to critically think about markets. And so especially at the early stages, at the early stages, at the pre-seed or seed stage, you'll have people who had some experience. They saw some gap in the world. You know, they were often, they were at a company and they were doing a thing and they couldn't believe that it was so painful. And so they wanted to go create a company to go solve that problem. They're just not trained to critically think about markets. And so as they pull together a pitch deck or as they start to sort of reach out to investors, I think they'll have all this great content about the problem and their solution and all this other stuff. But when it gets to market size, they'll Google whatever their category is, market size. They'll find some number in some report from like a random web page and they will say, this is a $19 billion market and here's the citation. Here's some random URL. Uh, and by the way, it's going to go to $23 billion by 2022. And this is the CAGR. That is, it might be harsh to call it useless, but it's pretty close to useless. I think the biggest thing for especially product founders is just really try to like make sure you are going after the right market. Because at the earliest stages, what there's usually not a product. And so what we're evaluating, for instance, is, is this a great team? And are they going after a great market with a unique insight? And if that is true, then that's very interesting to us. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's incredible. It's funny, because as you um, were describing the generic way of finding market size, I, I was laughing because I remember many years ago, putting together my first pitch deck for a product I was building at the time. <laughs> And I did exactly that, which is now years into my journey, um, I, I see the naivety in that. And I understand why that lacked the the detail, nuance and complexity that an actual investor might need. But yeah, I think a lot of folks are still doing that. And it is exactly, 
as you described, you know, because of our backgrounds and because of our skills and the things that we enjoy, we are optimized to focus on specific things. And it is the case that for many folks who are product oriented product managers or even engineers, folks coming from that background, they are so engrossed in the product, which is an incredible thing. But then they may forget some of these other critical pieces like the market, the business, et cetera. And I think that advice that you shared, you know, towards the end to really, really consider the market you're going into and make sure you're going after the right market is so powerful. Because just as you said, you know, from the investor's point of view, from your point of view, the product will change, but, you know, the team and the market remain consistent. So I think that's incredible advice. And uh, I know this is something you care very deeply about because this is your background. So I kind of just wanted to give you the floor and just think, you know, what other things should founders who have a very competent product background, what other things should they be thinking about as they start companies? You know, you've talked about making sure you're really looking at the right market. Are there any other pitfalls that they should avoid or any other pieces of advice that you, you know, you'd like to highlight? Yeah. And, and one, one clarification on the previous point, I think there's investors look for this, but I actually think the reason to do it is not because investors look for it, but because it's really critical to actually building a great business. If I had to sum up the most common pitfall for sort of great product people is that they, they end up building a great product instead of a great business. And I think a great product is often necessary, not always necessary, often necessary, um, but not at all sufficient to build a great business. On the market side, for for instance, the real, you know, the, the $19 billion number you find from a random website is all fine and good. But I think the real thing to try to internalize is, to me, market size comes down to two things. It's the number of customers times the basically how much each of those customers spends on this today. So it's basically number of customers times ARPU. I think to really start to understand the texture of the market, what you want to do is figure out, okay, who are, who actually are the customers? Like, let's build a list of who has this problem and how much do we think that they're paying each year for this particular problem? And once you start really getting into that exercise, uh, you get so much more texture on the problem. So if you take, for instance... Like often when you see these numbers that are, you know, 19 or 20 billion, sometimes it includes ex uh, existing software spend and that, uh, that includes headcount associated with that. And so if you drill in, maybe it's two or three billion a year that's on, spent on software. And then there's another 16, 17, 18 billion dollars spent on headcount. You know, then you want to ask the questions, well, on the software side, who, like, who are the players right now? And What's their pricing model and how much are they getting paid and how much is Bank of America paying for software for this category or, you know, whatever is the most appropriate. And I think once you get into the texture, you just start to understand so much more about the existing market and what the opportunity is and where you should focus, et cetera. And so that's on the market. I, I don't think, I mean, generally, I don't think you should do anything because investors ask for it. That is probably a waste of time. But you should try to figure out why are people asking these questions and what is the like the kernel of truth or insight that they're trying to get to and make sure you have an understanding of that. First, I think it's really understanding, to back to the meta point, I think it's really understanding the texture of the market, the complexion of the 
the users or the buyers and who's serving them today, how much they're paying today, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing to try to understand up front, you don't have to solve this, but to at least understand is go to market. I think especially today, it's tempting for product founders to look at, I mean, it, this varies by sort of consumer enterprise, but on the consumer side, I think it's tempting to say, we're just going to build a product and see and sort of grow it as big as we can get. And then we can monetize with, and here's a list of things we can monetize with. We can put some ads in there. We can sell some virtual goods. Maybe we can um, do paid stickers or, you know, what have you. There were a bunch of pitfalls there. And then on the enterprise side, I think, especially with product founders, there can be a temptation to not want to like not want to have salespeople. Just figure out we're going to build a, a product that sells itself. I'm actually very bullish on that overall approach. And I think there are some interesting companies like Slack and Notion and others that have really gone really far with this sort of bottoms up sales motion. But as it turns out, salespeople are really useful too. And understanding how the sales and marketing process works can be just incredibly valuable for designing the right product. Like one of the things that's one of the things that's really important is as you're sort of scaling up enterprise sales is just getting sort of the time that it takes to actually close a contract. And often that will be a function of how much integration work is needed, how complex it is to get the product hooked up to all of the infrastructure that might exist within a company. And a lot of the decisions that impact that are made at the very beginning when you first start designing the product. And so if you've thought about how you're going to sell the product two, three years from now, you can make much better and more informed decisions. And I think if you just aren't thinking about that at all or assume the product will sell itself, you can you can paint yourself into a corner pretty easily. So uh, these are all sort of variants of, it's not enough to just say, in my opinion, it's not enough to just say, well, here's a problem and I think I have a much better solution to the problem. I'm just going to design that thing and I'll figure all this other stuff out later. It's way better to try to zoom out, trust that you'll be able to design a great product here and then just make sure you have the texture of the market, have the texture of how you bring your product to that market and use all of that when you when you first design the product. That's incredible. You make it sound so doable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I appreciate you you breaking it down into, into such an actionable way. I know we don't have a huge amount of time with you, and there are two things I'd really like to talk about uh, before we wrap up, and that is hearing a bit more about um, the Scout program uh, and then also hearing a bit more about some of the trends in our industry that you're quite interested in. I know you are interested in like no-code and low-code apps, and that is a huge huge thing in our community. So I hope we'll have time for that. Maybe just like for a couple of minutes, um, you know, what's been your involvement with this scout program and how do you see that changing or evolving at Sequoia in the future? We just celebrated our 10th anniversary of scouts uh, a few months ago. When we first started the scouts program, what we saw was we had all these amazing founders in our network, um, typically founders that where Sequoia is sort of still actively on the board because the company is still going, or maybe it's a founder that had an exit in some form. And these founders, especially for the sort of active Sequoia founders of Series A, Series B, Series C companies, they were high profile. They were people that other founders would go to for advice all of the time. They could support those founders with their advice, but 
they might not have the means to actually financially support those founders. And one of the things that I think is really important, uh, and I think it's often people miss this, but I think one of the things that's really important to a thriving startup ecosystem is to have a just like a strong set of early, really early stage angels, scouts, pre-seed funds, et cetera, because that gives people the safety net to quit their comfortable job and raise a few hundred thousand dollars and just get started on their idea. And so um, when we first started Scouts, what we wanted to do was help our founders that were meeting all these interesting companies. Uh, we wanted to help those founders pay it forward and help the next stage of companies, both with their advice, but also with capital. The program has evolved and expanded over the past over the past decade. We, you know, we've invited other angels and just sort of uh, important folks in the community into the program over time. And yeah, we're excited. You know, right now to we we kind of run the programming classes, and so we're sort of midway through our fifth class. And um, you know, it's it's expanded. Many of our uh, many of our founders are scouts, and then we also have just a, a mix of sort of execs and angels and interesting people in the community that are really interested in working with founders at their earliest stages and helping them with both their sort of time and advice, and then also capital. Incredible. That's amazing. It's really interesting because um, it feels like the scout space is growing so much now. I mean, you've just celebrated a decade of doing it. So you're like OG scout program. Um, But as more and more venture comes into the market and more and more earlier stage uh, funds launch, um, there definitely seems to be this trend in sort of leveraging the community for um, deal sourcing, which is really interesting. Um, And it's great to hear, yeah, just to hear more about how it works over in Sequoia. I think one of the things that's important, especially as founders talk to scouts and, um, and, and interact with them, is the intention of the program is really to find scouts that want to, that not only have interesting, uh, sort of have interesting networks and interesting deal flow, but scouts that really want to help those founders with with advice and, and company building, the, the kinds of scouts that you can you can call up when things are going wrong or when you need advice or you want to figure out how to solve a particular problem and they're willing to sort of they're willing to dive in and help and there there are tons of amazing angels and scouts out there that do that but i think one important thing to just think about as people talk to angels and scouts is not just like there is a dollar investment that that they may do but really you're also getting sort of someone on your side to help build a company. That's what I think people should look for as they talk to to angels and scouts. Mm, that's super, super helpful advice. You, you want that value add. And as you say, there's so much specific process knowledge to be gained by being able to access founders that can share that advice with you. And that's incredibly valuable. Thanks for the reminder. Um, so I know that um, when we think of the future of tech, uh, trends on the horizon, things that you are interested in, uh, no code and low code apps are absolutely one of them. This is a huge movement in our community as well. Um, I just love to hear from you why why you're so bullish on this space. Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. One is, you know, when we talk about the community of professional software developers in the world, it's always stark just how small it is. You know, measurement varies, but it's somewhere on the order of 20 to 30 million people around the world, which I think is, you know, meaningfully less than 
I mean, it's certainly sub 1% of the world population. I think it's probably sub, you know, 0.5%. If I think about something like Excel, Excel and its brethren, Google Sheets and the like, have over a billion users around the world. And really, Excel is a programming environment. Like, the, there are certainly people that, that only use Excel as a list, but most people, I think, use Excel and some, some form of formulas in Excel to express computation. And I'm, one, struck by just the, the contrast between a billion people that use Excel, 20 to 30 million software developers around the world, and what, you know, what might the world look like if you sort of went Excel out instead of sort of software developer up? And the other thing that I'm struck by with uh, Excel and sort of Spetherin is it's, uh, it's got a billion users. It's also, I, I consider Excel to probably be the best product that Microsoft ever shipped. Um, I know one of my partners here, Andrew Reed, is is obsessed with Excel as well. Uh, like a random side note is if you ever go look at the Excel team in the mid 90s, that team is just uh, an absurd team of heavy hitters. Like there is, I've seen some screenshots that show like, here's a group of 10 people and here's what all these 10 people ended up doing. If you look at the Excel team from the mid 90s, it's the exact same thing. And so uh, Excel is this amazing project, but you have this funny dynamic where, you know, if you think about the program model inside of Excel, it basically looks like macros. And I think a lot of the reason for that is Excel wanted to be compatible with Lotus 123, which came before it, which was, you know, heavily informed by VisiCalc. And Google Sheets also wants to be sort of ex- compatible with Excel. And so in many ways, you have this programming environment that a billion people use, and it hasn't evolved since the sort of late 70s or early 80s. And so I think that's just uh, like a really interesting place to build a lot of software. I think the other thing is, you know, there's this massive proliferation of SaaS apps, especially in the enterprise. You know, there's kind of been consolidation on the consumer side, but there's been this sort of Cambrian explosion on the enterprise side. And so you end up with these hundreds of different uh, SaaS apps within any particular company. And... It, it ends up being, I think, really hard to just integrate data across those apps for a mix of like uh, incentive misalignment. Everyone wants to be a system of records. So everyone wants to keep the data within their own system. And then two, it's just combinatorially, uh, if, there, if you have hundreds of different uh, pieces, if you have hundreds of pieces of software within a company, getting each one to talk to every other piece of software is probably just is impossible. I think similarly, there is just a lot of opportunity in finding ways to connect those systems together that probably doesn't require, either doesn't require those systems to cooperate or is kind of a layer on top of them is really interesting. And I think, you know, if you look at uh, a company like Zapier or um, or the like, I think that's a lot of what motivates that is you just have all these different pieces of software. And is there a way that a you know a non-developer, a normal person can actually hook these things up and cause information to flow between them. I think there's a lot of interesting sort of tailwinds around empowering a billion people, not just 20 or 30 million people, to just make themselves way more productive and remove some of the drudgery of the drudgery of work. Yes. 
Yes, definitely. It's interesting because um, on a personal level, it's a movement that I've enjoyed following and participating in because, you know, it just takes ages to really get to that level of competency with coding where, you know, you're built, you get, you've got your web app working and it's doing this and that. And then you can just like use no code tools and, you know, do it in a fraction of the time. So I always understood my own personal motivation, but hearing you explain it um, at that macro level is like pretty cool and understanding how the pieces of the puzzle fit together makes a ton of sense. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that insight. So Mike, we've come to the end of our interview. It's been so cool having the opportunity to hear more about you and you know how you work at Sequoia and how Sequoia works with partners, in particular, getting all that incredible insight about how product-oriented folks um, should think about building their products as they become founders. So really grateful for that. For everyone who's listening and now kind of wants to follow up, uh, start maybe pitching to you, getting more of your advice, or um, just start to get more involved with the Sequoia community, where should they go? I'd say it's a mix. Uh, Certainly, you can uh, just go to our website and drop us an email. Or if you know someone that knows us and um, want to ask for an intro, that works great as well. You know, we try to meet as many people as we can, and we just try to learn as much as we can about as many different industries as possible. So we're always happy to try. Amazing. Mike, for now, thank you so much for being on Product on Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.